0: Well, good morning, Flood Church. So happy to be here with you this morning. Happy Mother's Day to all of our mothers. And uh, I remember when I became a mother. And we have four kids, and one of my very good friends called me, and she had had a couple of kids by that time. And she just gushed, isn't it just the best thing ever? And I was like, No. I can think of a lot more fun things, but it actually is the most important thing ever. So, our job is very serious, it's eternal, and uh, I just wish you a wonderful Mother's Day, and I hope that you have a chance to enjoy that celebration with your family. Uh, let's stand together as we read our scripture. Today's people problem is the people who want to tone. The people who want our devotion to God toned down. Our scripture is from Second Samuel chapter 6, verses 16 through 23. Let's read together. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. After he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israelites, both men and women. And all the people went to their homes. When David returned home to bless his household, Michael, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. And Michael, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. Please be seated. This sermon has a whole lot of implications for marriages, and I'm not going to talk a lot. It's not a sermon on marriage, but... I was reminded of myself and Jeff reading these verses, and uh, we've been married for 12 years, and music has always been a thing between us. Jeff loves music. I don't love music. Now, don't get me wrong, I like worshiping, I like worship music, but if Jeff could live in his perfect world, he would have it on 24-7, always, and it was always sort of a bone of contention between us because, for instance, Sunday morning, it's busy. Um, at the last church we were at, I was on staff, so it was, there was just so much going on. And so we would get in the car, and I would say, ah, quiet. And he would crank on the tunes. And I would be frustrated because I would want quiet. He would be frustrated because he wanted music. And uh, he, he really sort of thought that I was just doing it to be a nagging wife. And until, um, in order for our mission to send us to Malawi, we had to undergo all kinds of psychological testing. And uh, we had to do this thing called the Berkman Assessment. Has anyone ever heard of the Berkman? No? It's just this assessment that determines how you work, what your strengths are, what your weaknesses are, what your triggers are, uh, so that it can help you to understand yourself in any kind of a work environment or families or relationships. So Jeff scored 97 on music, that's out of 100. Very important, he loves it, wants it all the time. And I scored three, (laughs) three out of 100. (laughs) And that's not that I don't like it, it's just very low on my priority list. So even now that we've gone through that assessment and we understand one another in a better way, it's really helped our marriage. But even I think last week, I came into the kitchen. He had on his stereo and he had an earphone in his ear as well for his audiobook. So he could listen to his audiobook while having music in the background. So I started to talk to him. So he pulled out his earphones and I said, What are you doing? Like, you're listening to a book and to music? He said, Yeah, so that way when you come to talk to me, at least I still have the music on, I can shut my book off. So. <laughs> Marriage, yeah. (laughs) So as a church, we've been following this story of David. God has raised him from this humble shepherd boy, and he set him upon the throne of Israel. He came from a very low position and was actually raised up to the highest in the land. His family didn't really have position, but now suddenly he's the king of Israel. But he's still that song-filled shepherd boy although at the same time now king of a nation. So I've always wondered about this first wife, this Michael. She was given to David by her father Saul. So what are her thoughts? And and we read earlier that their story starts off almost like a love story, a fairy tale. She's the second of Saul's two daughters. She's a princess in her own right. She's grown up within the royal household. And this teenage princess falls in love with this young, rugged, handsome pauper who's also just a teenager, a common shepherd. If you look in your Bible at 1 Samuel 16, verse 12, it says, So Jesse sent for him. He was dark and handsome with beautiful eyes. And the Lord said, This is the one, anoint him. So not only is he this handsome brute, but... He's become suddenly a national hero, and when King Saul hears that David is in, or that his daughter's in love with David, he makes him really happy because he thinks maybe this might be his chance to actually pull David down. So as was the custom, Saul demands a dowry from David, but I don't know about you, but what kind of a dowry can a poor, last-born shepherd, teenager, offer the king of all Israel? But Saul, in his very wily way, sets the dowry at something almost impossible. 100 Philistine foreskins. (laughs) Undoubtedly, Saul would have been very smug at the thought of this because not only does that task seem unreachable, but he also knew that it would place David right in the midst of his enemies because we can't forget that he's just killed their giant. And David, with his usual custom, he goes forth into this impossible duty, it's dangerous, and he manages not only to meet the dowry requirement, but he actually kills 200 Philistines. We're the single ladies. We <laughs> Put your hands in the air. You know, if any man was to double what he meant to do originally for you, I mean, what kind of a man is this? So just think about how Michael feels about her hero. So this is how their story begins, a tale of young love and heroic action. Now, I'd want to do a small activity. So if you're married, I'd just like you to stand up. Everyone stand up if you're married. Even if your spouse is not here, that's okay. Stand up. Ladies, I want you to think about what is the most heroic thing your husband ever did for you. And everyone else seated, this is your chance to talk amongst one another. (laughs) I met my husband at church. It's a great place to meet people. (laughs) Now, so ladies, think about what's the most heroic thing your husband ever did for you. And men, think about what is the most heroic thing you ever did for your wife. Now, if you've been married for less than one year, please sit down. Less than one year, please sit down. Okay, what about less than five years? Can you please sit down? Under five. What about less than 10? If you're under 10 years married, have a seat. Okay, This is. I'm going to do a big jump. If you've been married less than 20 years, please sit down. Under 20. Whoa, we still have some. Okay, yeah, that's... That definitely deserves applause. Okay, last one. If you've been married less than 25 years, please sit down. Wow. Okay. So this couple I know very well. They're from our growth group, Larry and Mandy. Can you guys come right up to the front? Don't be shy. Step right up. And, and you guys as well. I want you to come too. Don't be shy. We're all family. Most people are on holiday today, so there's, don't, (laughs) so Mandy, have you been thinking about what it is that's the most heroic thing that Larry ever did for you? She said there's so many, she can't pick one.
1: I guess it's because he's always there for me, and um, when I'm, you know, when I've been at my most sickest time, he's been there for me, and emergencies, he's always there, yeah.
0: That's wonderful. Did you have one in mind specifically, Larry? Yeah.
1: It was a, a big leap of faith for us to come to Africa, come to Malawi.
0: So. Yeah. Wow, amazing. Thank you very much. And what about you guys? Can you tell us your name? Well, tell me because
2: I don't know. <laughs> um, Fred and Cindy Cressman. Okay, Fred and Cindy you? So Um Well, I don't know. We've been married a really long time. Um, How, long? How long? 31 years. Oh. <laughs> But we got married at 10. So, yeah, you know, it happens. Um, but I think, um, you know, after you've been married that long, you can't, events kind of, you don't really think of events. You don't think of your marriage in events. You actually
1: start forgetting. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and so I don't really, um, I mean, like, he never rushed me from a burning building or anything like that. I mean, that just didn't happen. But um, we raised... Um, four girls and we have a boy also so we have five children and I think that the most heroic thing he did for me was being a hero for our girls because that makes such a big difference in their life and in their decisions and in their adulthood so that's what I think
0: and Fred did you have something in mind yourself that you had been thinking about
1: I'm gonna be really honest I can't think of anything really heroic that I've ever done um, other than actually, to be quite honest, I can think of more heroic things that Cindy has done. <laughs> um, but I would say, uh, just the walk of faith for us that, uh, like, uh, this gentleman was saying, um, we decided about two years ago to take the leap of faith because we felt like God was calling us to Malawi. So we literally, we left everything. We sold our house. I left my ministry. And we came to Malawi and uh, I can actually remember the day. I remember I was driving in the car and having the conversation with God. And I knew at that moment we were supposed to come. So I called Cindy on the phone and I said, you are going to think that I'm crazy. I think we're supposed to move to Malawi. And she said, and she literally, she said, you're right. I think that you are crazy, (laughs) but I agree. And that's just the way our relationship has been. It's just been a walk of faith and trust that I'm so grateful for Cindy for, and it's just what God has made us to be together. So
0: So Fred and Cindy, 31 years. Larry and Mandy?
2: 41.
0: He says 41, she says 42. Either way. (laughs) That's amazing. Thank you very much for participating. Okay, she's saying 41. (laughs) So every love story has its own tale, how it's weaved together, how it changes with time, and David and Michael are certainly no different. Their story had a humble beginning, but it was actually knit together with love and heroic acts. Michael was given to David as his first wife, and I'm sure it must have started off as many new marriages do for all of those in your first year of marriage. <laughs> You learn how to live with one another, you learn how to love one another, you share everything, they have morning breath, their clothes are all over the place, on and on. I remember my first year of marriage and I'm so glad it's over. (laughs) In these early years of marriage, Michael even saves David's life. Saul is, he's completely bent on destroying David and he gets the house surrounded and he sends messengers to watch over him so that Saul could kill him the next morning. But Michael knew the heart of her father. She made a way of escape. She let David out of a window. And as a loyal wife, she tricked her father and put a a hair-covered image inside of his bed, in David's bed. And so when men burst into the room, they found out they'd been tricked. Saul was full of rage. And he accuses his daughter of disloyalty. That's David and Michael. But in our text today, things are a long way off from that. About 10 years after they were married, Saul actually gives Michael to another man in marriage. Undoubtedly, he was trying to end his relationship completely with David by severing not only friendship ties, but also family ties. Every element of their relationship was to be cut off completely, even to the point of breaking his own daughter's heart. And so she's given to this other man who's named Paltiel, Presumably, it happens at a time when David is on the run from Saul. Michael's not mentioned again in in the scripture for quite a while, but David does marry again and again and again and again. And he ascends to the throne, and Abner, who we've heard about already, wishes to make a treaty. And David agrees to this treaty with one condition, that the daughter of Saul should be returned to him. And so that's what happens. Ishbosheth, <laughs> the brother of Michael, the son of Saul, sends a message and Michael is taken away from her husband a second time by her male relative a second time. And if you just look at 2 Samuel chapter 3, verse 16 tells us the tragic story of her husband Paltiel following behind her weeping now there's obviously a love here between Michael with her new husband even though they had an arranged marriage they had learned to give learn to live together peacefully so scholars think that it's about 18 years that has now passed from Saul and Michael's wedding day up until the day she returns back to his house has anyone here been married for 18 years just putting it out there No, okay. But 18 years. Jeff and I have been married for 12, so we're not there yet, but I can only imagine what it would have meant from that person you were so long ago to who they've each become now. She returns to their home, and she finds things are not as they once were. David has so many wives and concubines, and she finds herself first in a very long line of women who are attached to this man. So gone are those two passionate young people who once experienced such danger, who once went to such heroic depths for one another. Michael's been living in peace with her new husband, but now she enters her first matrimonial home to find many women who have a claim to her husband that she wed so long ago. And David has changed too, hasn't he? He's no longer this young, adventurous hero, but he's a sophisticated Savvy politician who's become king and actually sits on her father's throne. Now, David has waited approximately eight years, from the day Michael was taken until the day he calls her back. We, we, can, we can wonder about that. Was it out of love or devotion, or if so, why waiting eight years? It's really possible that he's done this out of a political opportunity. He has the chance, the chance to strengthen his position within the kingdom of Israel. If the people see the daughter of Saul as the wife of the king, their concerns might be alleviated, their allegiance to David may follow, and the northern and southern kingdoms are united. Now, Michael's no fool. She grew up in the, in the kingdom as the, as the king's daughter and became the wife of a king. She'd be fully aware of why David would have wanted her back at, the, at his house. So what is it about the joy of others that can sometimes make us uncomfortable? Sometimes when other people have success, it makes us jealous. What is that? What is it about the happiness of others that make us angry or frustrated or annoyed? Most of the time, it's got nothing to do with that other person, and it has everything to do with this person. We have issues. These actions of others we disagree with. We feel they're wrong, and we want to judge because of what we think is right. We're anxious to hold others to a standard that doesn't actually exist, but we've developed in our own minds. And that's what's happening here with Michael. She's placed herself in the position as a judge over David. But wives, who better to judge him than her, right? (laughs) Right? (laughs) Everyone's quiet. You know, they were married for 18 years. She saved his life. He proved how much he wanted to marry her by uh, killing so many Philistines. They had at one time lived happily as a married couple, so who would know him better than her? Who would know his heart better than her? Who would know what really lies within the core of his humanity, within the depth of his character, and even his sin than her? And so she watches him as he dances unabashedly before the Lord. She watches his dignity fall to the wayside, and she is full of disgust. That's not what a king would do. That's not how a king would act. Doesn't he realize what kind of an auspicious time this is? The Ark of the Covenant is being returned to Jerusalem after such a long time. That's not how a war hero would undo himself in the presence of every public eye. Everyone has gathered, the whole city, to witness. But it is what a psalm-writing, giant-slaying, heart playing shepherd boy would do. So with all the bitterness and anger and resentment of every sin between them, the words spoken and unspoken, the deeds done and left undone, Michael wants David to tone it down. She wants him to stop acting like a fool. She wants him to put some clothes on for goodness sake. She wants him to act like a regal king. She wants him to be that man she remembers in her heart, the one who would rescue her personally, not just send one of her brothers to drag her home, back to a house full of concubines and wives. We can surmise she despises him because of the pain he has caused her. She holds him next to a standard that she feels is reasonable. And when she finds that he doesn't measure up, she despises him because of his unabashed shaming of himself in front of so many people at such an important time. So David, he's not innocent, right? He's he's done a lot of things. He's had a lot of misbehavior. He's committed some sin. Earlier in the same chapter, Uzzah dies because of touching the Ark of the Covenant while in the presence of David, right? But David observes the one thing we need to take from this passage God is worthy of your devotion, regardless of your sin and regardless of the opinions of others. Your worship does not depend on your worth, it doesn't depend on your ability, it doesn't depend on how good you are or how much you have accomplished. We can't allow the opinions of others to restrain our worship and our devotion. We can't even allow our sin to restrain our worship. Our devotion depends not on our ability or our status or even how sinful or sinless we are. It depends completely and totally on the worth of our great God. He is high above the earth. His name is indescribable. We could never do enough to be worthy of him. Now, I need to tell you... I need to, in front of my brothers and sisters, confess to you this morning about what happens at our house on Sunday morning. If you have any amount of children, or maybe none at all, or maybe you're single, Sunday morning is so challenging, um, and I've I've deemed that it is pr- it's a spiritual strategy of the evil one to try and discourage us and dissuade us from our worship. Now, as I said, we had four kids. Jeff and I have made a deal with each other. Saturday morning, I get to wake up whenever I want, and that's like 8 o'clock, which is sleeping in, okay, compared to 530. (laughs) And Sunday morning, he has to get up in time to go to church, and I get all the kids ready. So I think I have the better deal because I can set the time to whatever I want, but he thinks he has a better deal because he doesn't have to get the kids ready. So we're both happy, right? Compromise. And I'm not kidding you. uh, it, It was a real struggle for us for a few years, every Sunday morning, because I would be getting stressed out because we're running late. The kids are dressed, but now they're dirty. The kids were clean, but now they're messy. Their hair was done, and now it's gone. The dog is barking. The food is spilled. The cereal's on the floor. Anything that can go wrong goes wrong. And... I'd, I didn't always respond properly, and I would snap at Jeff or speak harshly to the kids or slam a door, um, and then I would we would get to church, and again, like, I, this was more of a problem a few years ago, but the church where, as I said, I was on staff, Jeff was on the board, so we'd get to church, and it's like, good morning, how are you? Praise the Lord, hallelujah, Oh, bless the Lord. I'm just so looking forward to worshiping him here this morning. Aren't you my brother? Oh, yes, my sister, you know. And then I would spend worship in repentance, repenting before the Lord for everything that I had done wrong that morning, the things I had spoken to my children or to my husband or the way I had acted. And the Lord spoke to me about that one day, and he said, you realize you're spending all of your worship time in repentance, and Jeff can verify I would even be nudging him and being like, I am so sorry about this morning. I am so sorry. I am not that person. And, tell, you know, giving the kids extra hugs and trying to reassure them that mommy's not psycho, it's just Sunday morning. So I had to really bring that into submission to the Lord and uh, realize that when I come to, ch- come to worship at any time, not just on a Sunday morning, It's not totally dependent on me or my worth or my ability or what I've done or haven't done, but it's all about him. It's all about his glory and his majesty and who he is. So coming back to our passage, I have some responses. When others want my devotion to God toned down, how do I respond the first one, number one, continue with your vocational and spiritual duties. David just carried on with exactly what he knew he was supposed to be doing in the moment. He was the king of Israel, and he also acted as a prophet. He pr- prayed a blessing over his people. This, the, the person who wants to tone down your worship, they may have a legitimate bone to pick with you or a beef with you or a problem with you but it's your responsibility to continue your spiritual duties. Don't neglect coming to church. Don't forget about your prayer life. Don't set aside your Bible reading. These are some of the things that make you a Christ follower, and we have to continue them. Number two, concentrate on those from your faith community. Instead of focusing on the person who wants you to tone it down, focus on those who want you to crank it up. (laughs) Now, we're going to do another exercise. I want you to stand up if you are in a growth group. Here at Flood Church, Pastor Sean tells us the primary way in which we express membership is through a growth group. Now, those standing, look at those sitting down and give them a high five. There's lots of them. They need high fives. They need to join up. Join up into a growth group. We've got sign-up sheets every Sunday. Okay, you can be seated. Those of you that are in a growth group, you know what I'm talking about. These people are there to build you up, to encourage you, to help you, to pray for you, to laugh with you. They're your faith community. When you have a faith community, you're able to grow in faith and increase your devotion to Christ. Number three, contribute to the needs of others. David passed out food, to the people who were part of this celebration. He went out handing cakes and fruit and meat. This kind of sounds like a flood hangout. Not enough salad. (laughs) So meet the needs of others. This increases your devotion, not only because you're giving something of yours away, but you're actually giving God the opportunity to meet that need in your life. One of my favorite thoughts is, if you have a need, meet someone else's. If you have a need, meet a need of someone else. And God will make up the difference. Uh, at, I work at Village of Hope, which is an organization that cares for orphans. So at one time, we were uh, preparing some things to give to a family that is connected to Village of Hope. Now, it's, a, it's an old agogo, and she's keeping her own four children. The firstborn has died. So this firstborn had three kids. One of those kids lives at Village of Hope. The other two are with her. So, and then this one, her family had ended. So she had three kids. This one, her family had ended. She had four kids. And then she had her last two that were just still young. So in total, there was something about 16 people being kept by this older grandmother. And so the child that lives at Village of Hope from this firstborn was going to visit the grandmother. And we were taking some things. Uh, some A bag of maize and... Porridge and salt, sugar, oil—just a few things to meet needs. When the team got there, I wasn't there, but the team had gone. This firstborn had given birth to twins the night before. We had no idea, and we were just thanking God that we fe- were feeling led to visit the family, take some things, and they had an obvious need. When we got the the team came back to Village of Hope, and we have a, like a Titan truck. So the driver had to move the Titan to another location, he gets inside of the truck and there's a 50 kg bag of maize in there. Nobody knew, we didn't know it was there, we didn't know where it was coming from, but the chairman of the board had borrowed the vehicle for a couple of days and he was just donating this maize to Village of Hope. If you have a need, give something away, meet someone else's need. You know, it's counterintuitive, it's against our own sin nature to give things away when we have a need ourselves. but it's actually, it's a biblical concept that we need to participate in. Number four, concern yourself with the faith of your family members. David went from these outside celebrations with the larger community to his home, the inner sanctum of his devotion. That which he publicly celebrated in the streets, he was prepared to share with those closest to him. Now, I didn't grow up in a Christian family. My parents don't serve the Lord. They don't know, they, don't, they did not know who God was. Um, our culture in Canada is very secular. It's just a normal thing not to go to church. But since having our own kids, I've been on a, a kind of a quest. Every single person I know who has a vital relationship with Christ and grew up in a Christian home, I'm asking them, what's the secret? What did your parents do? Let me write it down. I want the, ma- the formula. Tell me, tell me. And you know what it is? Every time, over and over, again and again, my parents were the same people at church as they were at home. That's what I hear every single time. There's no showy religion or whitewashed tombs. Every time... It's people who know and follow Christ in a real and meaningful way. Not just at church or in front of other people, but every day in the trenches of real life, day to day. Parenting, living, sleeping, drinking, eating, breathing, walking, talking. We can't neglect our duty as Christian families. And as people who follow Christ, we're raising these little humans to do the same thing. When someone wants you to tone down your devotion to Christ concern yourself with your family members and with them with them coming to know Christ. Number 5, commit yourself entirely to the worship of our God. David is totally unwilling to compromise. He wouldn't budge with his decision to worship with pure joy and total devotion. When we compromise, we actually give a foothold to doubt. It's not really stealing if I don't tell the cashier she gave me too much change. It's not lying if she didn't ask me where I was. It's not cheating if we didn't go all the way. Commit yourself entirely to Christ and his worship. Do not allow any footholds to slide in. Number six, compare yourself with no one else. What if David had said, hmm, I saw my neighbor dancing with shorts on. I'm taking it one step further. Ephod, baby. (laughs) And Ephod was just like a linen cloth that hung right in this area. But he didn't do that. He danced before the Lord in a way that was unique to him and unique to his devotion to Yahweh. In your own devotion to Christ, don't mimic someone else's style. Don't try and pray the way someone else does. God has made you unique, and the way you worship him is also unique, and the way you're devoted to him is also unique. Number seven, carry on with your identity. David is very strong with Michael here, and he tells her, I was chosen by the Lord above your father and all his house to be ruler over the people of the Lord, the people of Israel. Now, for those of us that are married, you know what's happening here. She's digging him with her comments. He's digging her with his comments. Now, Obviously, it's not a good way to interact with the spouse, but it's very clear that David is aware of who he is and what he was called to do. When someone wants you to tone down your devotion, remind them of who you are in Christ. You are his beloved, you have all of your needs met in him. You are a child of God. You are saved by grace through faith. You are redeemed from the curse of the law. You are strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. You are an overcomer by the blood of the Lamb. You are healed by his wounds. Somebody say amen. Come on. You're more than a conqueror. You are forgiven. You are a new creation. That's who you are. Number eight, close out the negative voices. You don't have to take them out of your life forever but you do have the opportunity to close out their voice. That means they no longer have the power over you to determine your, the strength of your devotion to Christ and his word. It means their voice no longer has a platform in your life. Now, if, if this person is someone very close to you, I would suggest you do it carefully and prayerfully, but it's still something you need to consider. I mentioned my mom. She's not a believer. So we arrived in Malawi in 2014, and she came to visit in 2015. We'd been here for about 11 months. And I was struggling with a particular issue, and I remember feeling emotional about it and talking about it with her. And with all of her motherly advice, she said, well, maybe it's just time to come home. Maybe it's just time to come back to Canada and bring those four children with you. I looked up at her, and I thought, what? I mean, I was annoyed with a particular situation, but for her, the best solution was just to go back to Canada. Now, obviously, she's speaking out of her own bias. She would love it if we lived there so that she could see our kids a lot more regularly. Now, I didn't close her out of my life, but I did close out that negative voice because that negative voice was biased to her own wants, her own desires. Number nine is a hard one you might have to confront that person. And this is exactly what David did, and it was something like a head-on collision. When Michael spoke to David about the dancing, he had the choice to respond or to walk away. Now, confrontation, it's not the only prescription for every situation, but it certainly does have its place. Now, let's consider that David and Michael have now been living together as husband and wife for it's approximately less than one year. Somewhere in the period of one year. Now, it's possible in that course of time that Michael has confronted David about other issues, various wives, concubines. And I also wonder if David said anything in response to her. We can't know, but I do find it interesting that he strongly confronts Michael when she mocks his worship. And this might be something you have to do. Number 10 is another hard one. You might have to cool your relationship. You may need to think about this with the one who wants you to tone down your devotion. Look at verse 23 in chapter 6. In my opinion, this is probably the saddest verse in this passage. As we know, the Old Testament is very clear about the opening and closing of the womb, the blessing of children. But in this verse 23, we don't actually read that this is an action of the Lord. It may be the scripture simply telling us that David and his wife just never shared their marital bed again. Their relationship had completely changed after this interaction, and it would seem they were not able to return to the shared joy of their youth found in one another. Now, if someone in your life, they want you to just tone it down, stop going to church every Sunday, quit that growth group nonsense, give up the prayer meeting you might have to consider which level you want to keep that relationship at. Number 11, let's consider the other. Let's think about Michael for a minute. As I shared the beginning, at the beginning, she definitely had a lot of right to be angry with David. If someone wants you to tone down your relationship with God, it's appropriate for you to consider where they are coming from. Do they have a reason? Have I done something to offend them? But it also needs to be handled with prayer and love. I, I don't actually think that David did everything that he could have to restore his relationship with Michael. In fact, it looks like he was not interested in restoration whatsoever. We can't put our relationship with other people above ours with the Lord, but we do need to consider how our own actions are interacting or impacting those people around us. Number 12 goes with it, check your heart. You know, in this passage, Michael definitely acted out of anger, unresolved resentment, and David partially responded out of pride as well as rejection. We have to make sure that our heart is right before the Lord, as well as our fellow Christians and other people. Number 13, celebrate before the Lord. David made it very clear to Michael that his worship would continue and that he would celebrate before the Lord. He wouldn't stop, he wouldn't tone it down, he wouldn't minimize it. Number 14, create opportunities for further worship. Soon after this confrontation in chapter six, chapter seven, David decides it's time to build a house for the Lord. He saw the opportunity before him to further his worship with a certain deed that was unlike anything else that had been accomplished by the people of Israel. When someone wants you to decrease your devotion, it's an opportunity for you to find ways to expand your devotion. Put your hand up if you would like to expand your devotion to Christ. Pastor Humphreys, just take a photo. We've got a lot of new, ministry, uh, new volunteers for the kids' ministry. <laughs> there are always ways to expand your devotion here within our body as well within your own life. The last one, number 15, Crave a closer relationship with Jesus. David was not satisfied. He told Michael that he would become even more undignified. He would become even more undone. He would go lower. He would worship more. He would dance harder. When someone wants you to tone down your devotion to God, it may be because they see a genuine hunger in your heart for the things of God. Don't give it up. Don't let it go. Keep pursuing it. Commit yourself to the next step. Say that you're going to go further. Now, I want to conclude this morning. Your lasting treasure, your firm hope, your sure victory, your biggest blessing, your strength in weakness, Your light in darkness, your foundation in shifting sands, your greatest joy is Jesus Christ. Your devotion to him and its eternality can compare to nothing in this life. There is simply no person, no relationship, no job, no opportunity, no family commitment that can compare to who he is and how he loves you. God has a purpose for our people problems. I mean, David had so many of them. We're only one-third of the way through Second Samuel, so we got a lot more to cover. I'm sure that you might have someone in your life that wants you to tone down your devotion. When I was a teenager, that's when I came to know Christ, and I can remember my brother telling me that this church thing was just a phase, and it's going to pass. There's no way you're going to keep going to church every Sunday for the rest of your life, and You know, he had an understanding that that's what it meant. And at the time, I remember, I felt so indignant and self-righteous about how sure I was that I was in this for life. My faith was not necessarily that Jesus had me for life, but that I was determined about what I was going to be doing. But I thank the Lord for how he he kept me. On to, they will try to discourage you. They'll try to get you to just ease up, cool off, Slow down, expand uh, your integrity, widen the gap between right and wrong. But you've got to push past it. You've got to fix your eyes on Christ. Look for ways to increase your devotion to Him and to His church. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we know that you have a purpose for our people's problems. For those that would want us to cool our relationship with you, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name that you would help us to know what to do. Give us wisdom that comes from your word. Give us strength and resolve to carry through with it. Most of all, Lord, I pray that you would continue to fan and to flame the work of God in each heart of, the, of each person here this morning, Lord. We are your people. We long to hear your voice, and we want to have opportunities for unlimited joy, to rejoice before you, God, to celebrate who you are. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.